Wow, it is good to see you guys, and uh, if you have your Bibles, open it with me to Joshua 14. What an important chapter, what a fun chapter. I ran into a friend of mine up in the balcony earlier, I gave him a hug, and I said, man, how are you doing? And he said, oh, okay. I said, well, that doesn't sound convincing. What's up? And he said, oh, I'm just feeling old. I said, well, then this is the morning for you because we're going to see that Caleb is now 85. And at 85, he said, give me that mountain and let me take those giants. I feel as strong today as I did when I was 40. So this morning's sermon is entitled 85 is the new 40. (laughs) And we're going to see that Joshua truly drank from a fountain of youth to maintain this zeal and this passion that he had for God. So it is good to be back. I'm going to share a bit about Mexico, and I I can't wait to, to share that with you in a moment. But let me read this to you first. Piper wrote... I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from February 1998, edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest, don't buy it, don't waste your life. It's great, isn't it? If we could travel back into ancient Israel's culture and we went into the ancient nursing home, retirement home, we would not find an 85-year-old Caleb in that nursing home. If we went to the, 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 the monthly shuffleboard tournament, we would not find Caleb. If we went to the local bingo and domino hall, we would not find Caleb. I don't think he would be playing uh, shuffleboard, not that there's anything wrong with shuffleboard, and I don't think he would be collecting seashells, but I think that where we would find Caleb is in the boardroom with Joshua and his generals. I think that we would find him at the tabernacle on his face before God, worshiping. Because Caleb was set ablaze with a vision. He had passion for God. And so let's read our text, Joshua chapter 14, and we're going to pick up in verse 6. And as Luke preached last week, the children of Israel had battled fiercely and successfully. God gave them the victory that he promised. And now it's time for Joshua and the leaders of Israel to allocate the land that they've inherited to the 12 tribes. And so we pick up in verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua of Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite said to him, this is Caleb speaking, this is the the hero of our chapter. And he says to Joshua, this aging general himself, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers, the other 10 spies, who went up with me, made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed, and we're going to see that this phrase is mentioned about Caleb no less than six times in Scripture. I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, 
Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said. These 45 years, he's held on to this promise for 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old, and I am still as strong today as I was in that day Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then. For war and for going and coming, thus the title of our message, 85 is the new 40. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim, the giants were there, these huge people, these warriors, the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave him Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephthunah, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephthunah, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. What was Caleb's secret? How did he maintain this fire, this passion? How were the years so graceful to him? How did he maintain this zeal for the Lord? And I believe that we can discern three characteristics, and these three characteristics are truly a fountain of youth. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that none of us would leave unaffected by your word. Let us all be renewed in our mind and transformed in our hearts, conformed in our life. And I pray in Jesus' name for this grace of growing old like fine wine with wisdom and with grace and with power and with authority. In Jesus' name, amen. So I believe that the first characteristic that we're going to be able to glean from the life of Caleb is this. One, Caleb was a wholehearted believer. He was a wholehearted believer. And we see chapter 14 right after chapter 13, and I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to discern from Scripture a contrast between three tribes that settled east of the Jordan and the character and disposition and perspective of Caleb. So if we look at the chapter before, we see that the tribes of the Reubenites, Gad, and a half-tribe of Ephraim, as Luke touched on last week, decided to settle east of the Jordan. And the problem with that was that that was not in the geographical area that God promised to the Israelites. Well, they wanted that land because before they crossed over into, before they crossed over the Jordan and they took the first city, Jericho, these three tribes, the Reubenites and Gad and the half-tribe of Ephraim, looked around and they saw that this was a spacious land, it was a beautiful land, and they wanted to settle there. Well, Moses and then Joshua said, okay, that's fine, we'll be gracious to you. You can settle, but you first have to help your brothers go and drive out all the inhabitants of the land, and then you can return and settle east of the Jordan. They wanted that land because it was spacious and good for cattle, but the problem with it was that it wouldn't be good for their children. And the reason that it wouldn't be good for their children is because it was outside the border. They were a borderland tribe. And being a borderland tribe outside of the geographical area that God promised, being a borderland tribe just east of the Jordan River meant two things. One, they were going to be susceptible to temptation from the influence of the pagan cultures surrounding them. Two, being a borderland settlement, they were going to be susceptible to attack. 
And we see, if Chris, if you could pull up First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 25 through 26, that being a borderland community did eventually catch up with them. We read about these three tribes of the Reubenites who set, settled to the south of this land, the Gads who were in the middle, and the half-tribe of, of um, Ephraim who was at the top. But they broke faith with the God of their fathers and whored after the gods of the people of the land whom God had destroyed before them. This is their children, their descendants. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Paul, king of Assyria, modern-day Iran, the spirit of Tiglath-Pilsir, king of Assyria, and he took them into exile, namely the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he brought them to Halah, Habor, Harar, and the river Gazorn to this day. In other words, they were destroyed and they fell into captivity. So being a borderland settlement made them susceptible to temptation, and it made them susceptible to attack. And I believe this is a direct contrast that the Holy Spirit wants us to pick up on to Caleb. Because we read that Caleb was wholehearted. Settling in the borderland was the furthest thing from Caleb's mind. In fact, he wanted to go as deep into the heart of the promised land as possible. And he picked out a mountain with warring giants on it. And at 85, he said, I want to take that mountain and let me at those giants. And he had that zeal because his heart was fully devoted to the Lord. And how often throughout Scripture do we see borderline believers play with a lukewarm faith, and it's just a matter of time before they lose blessings that God had promised them. Take Cain, for example. When he offered his offering to the Lord, his disposition was that of a borderline believer. And he said, how little can I give and it still be acceptable to God? Take Lot, for example, Abraham's nephew. And his disposition was, how close can I be to the corruption and immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah and still maintain my righteousness? Or take Samson, for example who said in his heart of hearts, how careless can I be with the secret of my strength and still be an instrument of strength. And all of these turned out to be very painful examples that God's blessings rest upon wholehearted believers and God's blessings remains upon wholehearted believers. Six times, as I mentioned, we see this phrase spoken of Caleb. He was wholehearted. Let's look at them. Joshua 14, 14. And we see, Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Numbers 14, 24. But my servant Caleb... Because he has a different spirit. Isn't that awesome? He has a different spirit. And has followed me, here's this word again, fully because of this. I will bring him into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Numbers 32 and verse 12. None except Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua the son of Nun. For they have, here's the phrase again, they have wholly followed the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 36, and we read, Except Caleb, contrasting him to an entire generation, the son of Jephthunah, he shall see this promised land, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has, here it is again, he has wholly followed the Lord. And again in Joshua chapter 14, verses 8 and 9, and we read, But my brother who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. Let me just ask you, are you a borderland believer? Or are you wholly following the Lord? You cannot maintain God's blessings upon your life unless you are wholly following the Lord. There is a saying... Talent will get you there, but it's character who, that will 
keep you there. God's blessings rest upon a heart that is holy and fully consecrated to Him. And we know that our inheritance today as followers of Jesus Christ is not geographical land. It's all the spiritual blessings that are available to us in the heavenly realm through Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, we read about this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. These spiritual blessings are peace, joy, love, all the fruit of the Spirit. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, God's authority upon our life, God's blessings upon us, as we've said around here a handful of times, God's momentum at our back. And as our hearts are fully devoted to the Lord, these blessings amplify, they intensify. The great evangelist Dale Moody was frustrated because there was a noticed lack of power in his preaching and in the response to his preaching. And he went to London and he heard a man preach and he heard this man make a statement that changed his world. This person said, the world has yet to see what God will do through the person who was fully consecrated to him. And that rocked Moody's world. And he committed to the Lord right then and there, Lord, I'm going to be that man. And after that, there was great power that rested upon him and that accompanied his preaching with conversion of souls. And so it is today. The world has still yet to see what God will do through the person who was fully consecrated to him. Oh, Caleb was such a person. And I believe that that's a secret to him uh, being uh, 85 and having the zeal of a 40-year-old. I, I don't enjoy getting out of town. I don't enjoy taking a vacation, to be honest, because I don't, I, I, I don't like leaving HopeWorks, even if it's for a week or two weeks. So to be quite honest, I dread going out of town all the way up until about three days I'm out of town, and then I kind of start winding down and relaxing. And uh, the last time I went to Colorado, I really dreaded going to Colorado. But then, you know, after being there for about three or four days, I was kind of hoping I would get snowed in. You know, I kind of wind down once I'm there. So then I enjoy being away. And even when I go out of town, of course, I'm, I'm in the Word and I'm praying and, and I try to find a Christian church somewhere. And, and even if there's not a Christian church, I'll, I'll go to a Catholic church. I just, no matter what, I'll, I'll find some believers to try to assemble, assemble up with. Um, so I'm in the Word. I'm relaxed. I try to attend a, an assembly if possible. But then when I come back, I notice that my walk with God is a little rusty. It's a little sluggish. I mean, I'm, I'm in the Word, I'm praying, I, I try to find some believers to go circle up with and, and pray beside, and yet I come back and my walk with God is rusty. And I believe the reason to that is because I don't think it's possible to wholly follow the Lord as Caleb gave us an example if we are not walking hand in hand with brothers and sisters that we are called to. Brothers and sisters in the trenches of ministry. And so what's it going to take in order for you to transition from being a borderline believer to be, being a wholehearted follower of Christ? Perhaps on a very basic level, there's some sin in your life. What is that? You guys want to volunteer? What, what's your sin? Raise your hand. No, I'm kidding. You don't have to do that. <laughs> but it would be fine if you did. But what is it? Whatever you're holding on to, listen, it's not worth what you're forfeiting by not being a wholehearted believer. It might be something everybody knows about. It might be something that only you and God know about. But whatever it is, whatever sin you're entertaining, it is not worth everything that you're forfeiting by choosing not to be a wholehearted believer, by choosing to be a borderline follower of Christ. Perhaps you need to commit to the worship with the assembly of believers. 
where you come together and, and your hearts are linked with other brothers and sisters of Christ. You're the family of God and you pray together and you worship together. I, I came in from my study and I saw Kyle. It was so good to see Kyle. And I said, hey, brother, just let's pray together. And it was so awesome for him to pray. And my spirit resonated within me because I'm worshiping in the assembly with the church family that I am called to walk along with. Perhaps you need to commit to the worship in the assembly because scripture says, don't forsake yourself the assembly as some are in the habit of doing. And this isn't a lackadaisical attitude. I mean, do you think that, that the Dallas Cowboys would know it if a player decided just to stay home that morning? Of course they would. And the body of Christ notices it. We feel it. If your approach to the body of Christ is lackadaisical. So get your game face on. Wake up in the morning, drink some coffee, worship, pray, read the word, and come out expecting for God to pour into you and change you, and come out expecting to pour into somebody else. But not only do we have to worship in the assembly in order to maintain a heart that's fully devoted to the Lord, but we have to also walk in community in order to maintain a heart that's fully devoted to the Lord. And this is what we call home groups or 240, Acts 242 groups or deeper on Wednesday nights at 6 or our Saturday morning groups or um, ministries throughout the week. We have to walk with brothers and sisters in Christ who know us and we know them. A group of people that we can know and they know us. We can love and they love us. We serve, they serve us. We celebrate, they celebrate us. And we... We, we bear one another's burdens. Are you walking in community? We have to worship with the assembly. We have to walk in community. And not only that, but in order to maintain a heart that's fully devoted to the Lord, we have to work in the ministry together. I so agree with David. David said, I would rather be an usher in the house of the Lord than spend a thousand days elsewhere. I'd rather be an usher one day in the presence of the Lord than a thousand days anywhere else. I love everything about the local church. I love everything about this thing called the body of Christ, reaching up to worship Christ, reaching in to encourage one another, reaching out to a lost and dying world. When I have the honor to even fold bulletins, I have passion about that. Because I'm serving the Lord in the body of Christ. I know we serve the Lord in our vocations, in our workplace, at home. But this church, this is the body of Christ. This is exactly what Jesus shed his blood to create. There is something so holy, so reverent, so special, so awe-inspiring, so glorious, so eternal about this thing called the church. The body of Christ. That when I fold a bulletin... It is an honor to do the smallest thing in this assembly that Christ shed his blood to create and that he dreamt of on the eve of his crucifixion and prayed, oh, that they would be one, Father, as you are in me and I am in you, that they may know this unity through the spirit that I give them, that they may be one. And you've been given a gift for the specific purpose to encourage and challenge and sanctify and build up the body of Christ. And when you discover what that gift is by simply showing up, meeting needs with love, that gift emerges, your faith emerges, and the body of Christ is edified. And we cannot wholly follow the Lord if we are not witnessing to everyone, everywhere, if we are not testifying to what Jesus Christ has done in our life. So ask yourself this question. With sincere introspection, are you a borderline believer? And could that be a reason that there's sadness in your heart? Could that be a reason that there's a joylessness about you? Or are you wholly following the Lord, your God? And I believe the second characteristic that we glean from Caleb, who made 85 the new 40, 
is that he was not only an unwavering believer, but secondly, he was an undying dreamer. He received a vision when he was 40 from God through Moses that he was going to inherit the land, and he held on to that dream for 45 years. He was an undying dreamer. Oh, how critical it is for us to maintain dreams. And not just stuff that, that we conjure up, like I think it would be a good idea if I did this, or not just stuff that we put on the calendar to, to have to look forward to. I just need to hold on for that graduation, or I just need to hold on for that shuffleboard tournament, you know, next quarter, and I need to be on my best game for that. I need to be really prepared. It's not just stuff that we look forward to, and it's not just stuff that we invent in our minds. It's a vision. A vision is something in the very heart of God. A vision is a desire in the hearts of God that is not yet a reality in this world. And God's first step in making it a reality in this world is by first putting it in your heart as a dream, a seed of a dream. That's a vision. And we read in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, that without a vision, the people perish. He was 85 and was as filled with purpose and passion as if he were 40. And 45 years earlier, the 10 spies who came back with the negative report had no God-given vision in their heart. It's not that God didn't try to give it to them. They didn't have a heart to receive it. And though they were 40... They were already dead. And, eight, and, and Caleb was 85 and had as much purpose and passion as if he were 40 because a God-given dream remained alive within his heart. Is that not an awesome definition of a vision? A desire in the heart of God? It's not yet a reality in this world yet. And God's first step in making it a reality in this world is to put it inside your heart. What an honor. And then that dream will start to beat inside your heart with purpose and passion. And you can water that dream and it will grow and it will keep you awake at night and it will haunt you until you finally step out in faith and let God work that dream from your heart into reality. I don't know if you've ever been camping in the fall, late into the fall, or in the winter when it's cold, but isn't it amazing how much warmth that fire will give you? And you walk away from it, and it's cold, so you walk back, and wow, this fire really puts off, puts off a lot of warmth. But then as the night wears on and the fire dims, and then the last embers are extinguished in that campfire, then suddenly you feel the chill of the night. And this is like a vision. It's like a fire in a cold, war, in a, in a cold world. And the moment that fire is extinguished, oh, life gets cold. Life gets empty quickly. If you would be nostalgic with me for a moment, and reminisce during the days of your first car, or during the days of no car, during your waiting table days, or during your no job days, your freshman year of college days. Reminisce with me for a moment in the days when the only thing that you had were your dreams. Remember those days? when all you had were your dreams. And now, I see so many people in the present tense who seem to have everything except for dreams. And they were far richer when all they had were dreams. And they're far poorer when they have everything except for dreams. When we spend more time Looking back, then looking ahead into the horizon, it's something that is not yet a reality in this world, but God put it in our heart. When we spend more time looking back than into the horizon of a vision, something that God has chosen us to do, 
a vision that he has chosen us to, to, to birth it through. When we spend more time looking back than ahead, life is over. But Caleb was as fiery at 40, or was as fiery at 85 as he was at 40, because that dream continued to blaze in his heart. I've loved the God-given dreams that I've heard from you guys in just a matter of the recent weeks. I was talking on the phone with Robbie Bollinger before I left to Mexico City, and he was talking to me about his vision for everybody in this church to be part of a community that's described in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, a family that runs deeper than communities and neighborhoods and clothes and skin and blood, but right down to the spirit of Christ, the deepest and most long-lasting and eternal bond that we can have of knowing and sharing and growing and bearing one another's burdens. This vibrant life that's imparted by the Spirit of Christ, unifying everybody. He was just talking about how he dreams for everybody to be part of that 242 community. And as he was talking about it with such passion, I knew, oh, the Lord has birthed this in your heart. We have a young adult group on Thursday nights, and, and I've seen a vision continue to grow in, in the heart of Dakota Dakota's the uh, vice president of TCC student body, and he has a dream of assembling everybody together on campus and all the, 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 the corresponding, the, the, the network of, of campuses and local universities to hear worship and to hear the gospel and be introduced to Hope Works. And it's nothing that, that, that anybody gave him except the Lord planted that on his heart as, as, a, as, as a vision. And, and visions are exciting and they're, they're terrifying, but they force you to rely on God and God alone. And without them, the world grows cold quickly. I love visiting with Austin and Courtney, and Courtney talks about the, the vision that she has on her heart that, you know, kids aren't like less followers of Christ. They're not sub-Christians, so therefore they should experience the same kind of community in Acts 2, 42 through 47 that we strive for the adults to experience. And as she talks about that, it's evident that the Holy Spirit planted that in her heart. And when we go into stop six and come on, we pick up kids and we bring them out. And for over the course of 10 years, we see that the gospel, dare I say it, is not enough. It's the gospel plus the consistent love of a church family week after week after week. The gospel is certainly enough to take your soul to heaven, but it's not enough to get the corrupt world and culture out of your character. It requires the gospel plus the consistent love of a church family. And we've seen after 10 years, the kids that we bring from Como and Stop 6 who have been poured into consistently, weekly, year after year after year after year after year after year after year have characters that are stronger than their culture. And so a vision is birthed to be able to minister, to be able to replicate and dip duplicate that in a systematic fashion to, to apartments, clubhouses, and areas are all around Fort Worth. And in 10 years, we will certainly impact lives, but we will also change a city. And in going to Mexico, I was researching about it, and I realized there's 1.6 million orphans in Mexico. And so when we were there, we prayed that the Lord would guide our steps, and he did to an, to an orphanage. It was a fact-finding mission, and we developed some blueprints to be able to, to, to begin an orphanage in Mexico City, and there's 20 million orphans in India. And there's so much work to do. I mean, when we get to the end of our life, Let's not look back with a bucket of seashells and say, look, look, Lord, look, look what I did. I believe that God's heart is breaking, God's heart is burdened, and he's looking for somebody to whom he can entrust with the seed of his desires that are not yet a reality in this world. Will that person be you? How do you receive such a vision? How do you receive such a vision? Let me just share some very practical steps, and I pray that you begin implementing them today. And I pray, if you don't have a vision, that you would begin desiring a vision more than your next meal, and it would move you to fast and pray until the Lord plants a vision in your heart. One, 
You got to slow down. Life moves in fifth gear, and we tend to move in fifth gear with it, but we cannot receive a vision from God if we're moving in fifth gear. So we have to downshift to about first gear to neutral. Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. There is an intimate relationship between us slowing down to abide in the presence of Christ, to seek the face of God on a daily basis, and knowing Christ personally. There's an intimate relationship between us being still and knowing God. So often, we say, God bless this, and God said, I never told you to do it. We just have to slow down and hear from God what He wants to do in our lives and what He wants to do through us. And these disciplines are basic. It's fasting, it's praying, it's repenting, it's being in the Word, it's seeking the face of God. And know this, when you slow down to seek the face of God, God will bless you with many things. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, and not the least of which is a fresh vision. Are you set ablaze with a vision? Slow down. Two, breathe in. You guys just breathe in for a second. (sighs) Breathe in. The peace of God. Breathe in. The presence of God. We breathe in. We slow down and we breathe in by learning to delight ourselves in the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Our calling in life is so non-burdensome. Our chief primary calling in life is simply to enjoy God. That's it. Did you know that? The chief primary calling of your life is simply to enjoy God. It's not to labor away for Him, slave away for Him. It's simply to delight yourself in the Lord. Martha was busy, 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 and Jesus told Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen that which is better. In fact, only one thing is needed. She's chosen it. That one thing was to simply enjoy Him, to breathe in His peace, His promises, His presence. What have we made it? What have we made it? It's a relationship, and we're designed to enjoy Him. Thirdly, well, let me back up to breathe in. You delight yourself in the Lord. Watch the result of this. Watch the reward of this. He will give you the desires of your heart. He will give you what to desire. That doesn't mean if you want a shiny red bicycle, He will give you a shiny red bicycle. It doesn't mean he'll give you your whims. It means he will give you what to desire. So if consistently, daily, we slow down and we breathe in and we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us his desires, and those desires are vision. The beautiful thing about vision is that vision liberates us from the things of this world that the Joneses run after and worry about and the sin and the self-destruction in this world, vision liberates us from the things of this world, but vision enslaves us with the things of heaven. And we become heavenly-minded, and we have this burning desire that won't be quenched, that won't be snuffed out. It will absolutely haunt us until we begin taking steps of faith so that God can birth it through us. God has a vision for you, but have you learned the discipline of delight so that you're delighting yourself in the Lord? And as you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you your desires, and your heart will begin beating with that desire. Thirdly, breathe out. So you guys breathe in, breathe in again, and then breathe out. This is prayer. We pray these visions back to God. Jeremiah 33, 3, God says, call to me and I will answer you and I will show you great and mighty things that you know not of. God could snap his fingers. God could think it. And the vision could become a reality without us. 
God doesn't have to go through us, then why does he choose us? Because he wants a relationship with us. He wants us to, to, to rise up to a new level of dependence upon him and desperation upon him. So that if he doesn't come through, then we fall flat on our face. So we're crying out to him. And what goes up in terms of prayer over God-given vision will come down. And as Abraham realized, sometimes it comes down 25 years later. As, as Caleb realized, sometimes it comes down 45 years later. But the key is we continue to delight ourselves in the Lord and pray those visions and expecting them to come down. And as we read in the book of Revelation, that the prayers in the throne room of God come out of a bowl that's incense. That means that our prayers to the Lord are a sweet aroma. And then I love this in Revelation, an angel takes this bowl of our prayers and hurls it back down to the earth where there's lightning and rumbling and thunder. So what goes up will come down. But it doesn't always come down in the same form that it went up. But when it comes down, it's always more powerful, more beautiful, more God-honoring than we would have ever dared to imagine. So we have to slow down. We have to breathe in. We have to breathe out. And then cultivate the vision. Habakkuk 2.2. Write the vision plainly on a tablet. Write the vision down. I loved in Billy Graham's autobiography when he was still a seminary student, I believe at Wheaton College, there was a little island that sometimes people would canoe out to. And he would canoe out to that island. And he would stand there and he would preach the gospel to tree stumps. And then he would pray, God, turn these tree stumps into people. And then when he would canoe back to his friends, they would say, did any squirrels get saved when you were out there? But he was cultivating the vision. So inspired by that, sometimes I'll go to Benbrook Lake and just spend time with the Lord, and I'll preach the gospel to the waters, and just pray, God, turn these waters into people. And as they crash into the shore, let them roll back out and get more people who need you to come back in to crash into the rock of Christ. You have to cultivate the vision. You have to write it down. You have to read about it. You've got to dream about it. You've got to take pictures of it. You've got to visualize it. You've got to remind yourself every single day. And then five, dare your dream. You've got to dare your dream. I love the example of Peter in Matthew chapter 14, verse 28 and 29. When he stepped out, stepped out of the boat and walked on water. How incredible was that? And I love that he sank. Because I think that sometimes we will pray and we'll spend time with the Lord and we'll have a desire, but then we won't dare the dream because what if we fell? And I love the example of Peter because in reality, you will fail. You'll sink. But God can do amazing things through sinking souls because sinking souls cry out to him in desperation. Sinking souls are exclusively focused on him, and so he picks them up. But God can't do much to the other 11 who are in the safe boat. They might criticize. They might have all kinds of pointers for you, but they didn't have the opportunity to walk arm in arm on the water with Christ's arm around you, with water spraying in your face as you're daring the dream that you dreamt of for so long. So you take a step. And you pass out flyers, you rent the facilities, you, 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 you take the chance, you, you mix things up, whatever it might be. You take the risk. And if you fail, then as Teddy Roosevelt said, at least you fell while daring greatly. And your place will never be with those cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. And you'll hear Christ saying to you, I am so proud of you, because the goal is never, ever, ever, ever success or failure. The goal is only obedience or disobedience. That's all that matters. 
And when we obey the Lord, he will smile at us and he will carry us and the dream will unfold. Maybe it's, maybe it's 17 years like, like Joseph before it becomes reality. Maybe it's 25 years like Abraham. Maybe it's, maybe it's 45 years like Caleb. Who cares? The, the goal is that we're walking by faith and obedience as we're trusting in the Lord. So I believe that Caleb drank deep of the fountain of youth because he had an unwavering faith in God. He was wholeheartedly devoted. Second, he was an undying dreamer of the impossible because God put it in his heart. And thirdly, I like this characteristic. He was an undaunted fighter. That word undaunted was carefully chosen. It means not intimidated, not discouraged by difficulty, danger, or disappointment. I think that characterizes Caleb well. He was an undaunted fighter. He was a true lion in his culture. And at 85, he said, I feel as good as if I'm 40. Give me that mountain and let me at those giants. Don't let the prospect of difficulty keep you in bed. I believe that Caleb was even excited that there were giants on that mountain. I think that that invigorated him as opposed to if they weren't. He actually looked forward to the challenge. He looked forward to the trial because he didn't see a challenge. He didn't see a trial as the prospect that God had abandoned him. Just the opposite. He saw a challenge. He saw a trial as an opportunity to trust What's your trial? Your trials are never something that we, that we plan on. If we got to pick our trials, it would probably go something like this. We run out of gas on a downhill slope about a quarter mile away from a gas station, and we just coast in. Whew, that was an intense trial, right? We would choose things like that, but not the trials that we actually experience. What trials have you experienced this past week? Those trials are not an indication that God is not with you or you're not blessed. Those trials are an opportunity to trust. It's an opportunity that God is going to cultivate your character through it because you trust Him. It's an opportunity that God is going to display His glory in your life because you trust Him. It's an opportunity to trust God. Do you have such an opportunity in your life? I think you do. And if you can't think of it, it will enter your life this week. Embrace that opportunity to take that mountain, to fight those giants. Say, I'm going to trust God in this. Somehow, some way, I don't see it, I don't understand it, I didn't plan it. My initial response was that this is just a nuisance, an irritation, a frustration, but I'm going to slow down and I'm going to trust God in this. God be glorified in this. As we read in James chapter 1, verse 2, count it pure joy, my brothers, not if, but when you face trials of various kinds. Because it's an opportunity, God's going to cultivate your faith and your character through it. And keep trusting and we read in Galatians 6, 9, that if you do not grow weary in doing good, in due season you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. I'm afraid that some young folks on here are already old, worn-out souls because you're not wholly devoted to the Lord. You don't have a God-given dream. And you're terrified about a daily fight, an opportunity to trust Christ. May we learn from Caleb, who never grew old. Oh, his years increased, but his heart was always like a lion because he was wholly devoted. He had a God-given dream alive and burning in his heart. And he was always excited about the prospect of a new fight. Would you stand with me, please? It's a great chapter, isn't it? If you would bow your heads, how many of you would say, you know what, there's some things about Caleb's character that I would like to begin incorporating into my life. Would you raise your hands? Yeah, me too. It might be that you're not wholly devoted to the Lord. 
Well, you can take care of that today. Isn't that awesome? It's not like, you know, the health club where, you know, it's going to be six months before you get to where you want to be. Today, you can repent today. You can receive the Spirit's power to walk in freedom today. Twelve steps are great, but it doesn't take twelve steps except for the twelve steps from your pew to the altar to repent and ask to be flooded with the Spirit of Christ and to walk in complete freedom. Will you walk out of this place as a fully, wholly devoted follower of Christ. Well, the altars are here for you. Repent of what you need to repent of and ask the Spirit to fill you afresh with His power because the world has still yet to see what God will do through the person who is totally consecrated to Him. Second, do you have a God-given dream? Maybe you had a God-given dream once and you've let it grow cold and now this morning you just need to come and just sort of stoke that fire and fan it into flame again. The world doesn't have to be such a cold and empty and purposeless place because God has a dream for you. How do I know that God has a dream for you? I can prove it. If you guys would look at me for a moment, take these two fingers. Go like this. Feel that? That means God's still got a dream for you. His mercies are new every morning. There's something that God has ordained you to do, and He's not going to pass it off to somebody else. He loves you too much for that. But you got to downshift from fifth gear to neutral and receive those God-given desires. And keep fanning it into flame and risking it and daring it and failing and trying again. And then thirdly, are you looking forward to a fight? Shift your perspective a bit. Instead of saying, oh no, my life is like surrounded by this glass bubble and I'm just so afraid it's going to shatter. Let's say, bring it on. If it shatters, it shatters. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Let it shatter. I'm ready for a fight. I want to take that mountain and give me those giants. Let me at them. And I'm going to embrace this trial as an opportunity to trust that God is good on the mountaintop and God is good in the valley. Perhaps you need to stop being afraid of trials and you need to start embracing them as a fight to trust God. So Father, you know our hearts, you saw the hands, and we pray that nobody would leave the same. We pray that the timid would leave on fire and bold. And the wayward would leave surrendered. And the fearful would leave ready for a fight. In Jesus' name, amen. And let's respond.